0: This is the Read to Lead Podcast, episode 328.
1: Point of communication is to create shared understanding. And the reason that's so important is because shared understanding becomes the platform on which we take all future actions.
0: Hey there, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Brown, and you've found the Read to Lead Podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. For I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. Each week, we're joined by another successful and inspiring author as we chat about their latest book and their unique insights on things like personal and professional growth, leadership, Productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and entrepreneurship. Today, we're being joined by Ala Hunkins, author of the book Cracking the Leadership Code Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. I'll be asking him to share about the bad leadership examples from generations past, still plaguing many teams. Why leading with empathy is at the top of the list of skills leaders need to be successful what he's learned about how to best motivate others, and much more. Well, in the coming weeks, I have the distinct privilege of speaking at events as close as Nashville, where I currently live, and as far away as Australia, all, without leaving the microphone I'm sitting behind right now. Yeah, it's a bit of a different world we live in today, and a lot of events, in-person events, have gone virtual. If I can help you with your virtual or eventual in-person event, I'd love to hear from you. I've spent the last seven or so months working on a signature talk designed to help event attendees realize their biggest dreams and highest priorities. And a lot of what I present in that talk is a culmination of the 327 interviews I've conducted over the last seven years. What are some of the things that all of these successful people have in common? Well, I've discovered that nearly all of them do these five things, and I share those things in that signature talk. If I can help your event attendees realize their biggest dreams and highest priorities, or you have another topic in mind you think I might be a good fit for, you can reach out to me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. <laughs> Well, his name is Alain Hunkins. I think I'm saying that right, but he will correct me if I'm wrong. He's a sought-after speaker, consultant, trainer, coach. Over his 20-year career, he's led over 2,000 groups in 25 countries. Some of his clients include some companies you've probably heard of, places like Walmart and Pfizer and GE and State Farm, IBM, General Motors, Microsoft, others. Uh, He's designed and facilitated seminars on numerous leadership topics, including uh, team-building, Conflict management, communication, peak performance, innovation, engagement, and change. And I know one of the questions I want to ask him is how has all that been disrupted in light of uh, what our world's going through right now? We'll get to that in a moment. His new book I loved and is called Cracking the Leadership Code Three Secrets. To building strong leaders. Alain, uh, how am I doing on the name? <laughs> you are doing so excellent. Your high school French is paying off big time today, Jeff, so thank you, and thanks so much for having me today. I'm really happy to be here. Well, my pleasure. It only took 35 years for my high school French to pay off. <laughs> well, let me start by asking a question I don't often ask, but I wanted to ask you, what what was your ultimate goal in writing the book? It is, is it essentially maybe to take what you've been sharing in these seminars and workshops these last several years and bringing that to a larger audience? Is it that and other things? What would you say is the answer to that question?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the goal of the book was to take the experiences that I've had working with thousands of leaders over the years, distill them down. 'Cause I've seen these patterns of behavior that would keep showing up and patterns of you know, great leaders have patterns in common, and so do mediocre ones. <laughs> and and what I realized is that everyone has great intentions and having a roadmap that will show you not just what to do, but also say, you're going to fall into this hole every so often, but be aware of it. For me, the goal of writing the book was to try to reach and help more people to accelerate their learning curve and to become better leaders.
0: When I look at my career, the last uh, 30 plus uh, years, I can draw this sort of line of demarcation between the good and the bad years. And and, and the, the first 15 or so were the bad years in the sense that My leadership style was based upon, I think, years and years of leadership styles handed down to me. And I'm not even sure I recognized that uh, until much, much later. And and you point this out in in the book uh, very early on, this assertion that bad habits uh, of previous generations have have, have been passed down to us. That was so true for me. I so identified with that. What are some uh, specific examples of this? Uh, What is it that, that no longer works? Yeah, great question, because you named it, this idea of these
1: bad inherited habits, because we learn through example. And if we think about leaders today in 2020, we learn from our leaders and they learn from their leaders. And you have to keep going back all the way to the early industrial age. So three big bad habits that are huge holdovers from when 95 percent of the workforce was working doing manual labor on an assembly Mm. line at a factory. One is there is a huge bias for leaders to value efficiency over effectiveness. Mm. Um, We're always thinking about, how can I do this the best way? And we tend to factor out the humans. I'll give you a simple example, I'm sure that anyone can relate to. How many of us schedule meetings back to back to back to back, (laughs) like eight o'clock goes to nine o'clock. And on paper, it all works fine. But you know, The Hmm. map is not the territory. And so recognizing that you know, and just this need to kind of move through things. Another quick example on that one is, you know, I've worked with teams to help them craft their mission or vision statements. And I remember talking to a senior executive at a Fortune 100 company, and he literally said to me, oh, you want to spend a day on this? Can't we just bang this puppy out in an hour? (laughs) Like, oh, we're going to bang out the puppy of the mission of, again, it's this sense that leadership wisdom is knowing when to go fast and when to go slow. And Mm -hmm. a lot of leaders still are stuck in this bad habit of, valuing efficiency over effectiveness another big habit is the tendency to do a lot of telling versus asking. We mm. think, oh, I'm the leader, it's my job to tell you what to do. And uh, if you have questions, of course, I won't ask you and I won't create a dialogue. It's just, it's much more push than pull when it comes to information. This gives rise to something that we're all familiar with, the meeting after the meeting, right? <laughs> like, what do we just decide? What did they agree to? All that stuff. So that's another example. And then I think another a huge one is we always focus on the numbers. First, Hmm. it's as if we worship at the altar of numbers and we don't recognize that the numbers performance metrics are only a lagging indicator of the behavior of the people who are doing things that create those numbers. And so oftentimes conversations about people and behavior and culture gets short shrift. So that's another big, bad habit that you see day in and day out in so many organizations and with so many leaders.
0: And I identify with that so much. I remember a very specific situation in my leadership journey where I lost an employee. I hired a friend and I actually lost a friendship in the process. I can uh, say that that friendship has since been repaired. Lesson, don't hire your friends. Uh, but uh, I lost that employee and then friend for some years because I insisted that you know you do just what I tell you to do and you do it the way I tell you to do it. That was my leadership style. You, know, you don't put your own stamp on things. And she came to me and she was like, you, know, you, you don't care about the, the outcome. You, you care more about the process. Isn't the main thing, the product I put out at the end of the day, does it matter how I, how I get there? And I just had not, I didn't understand that. I, I hadn't wrapped my head around that. And I viewed leadership as I have all the answers. I just need you to do what I need you to do. Yeah,
1: you've named it exactly that. Mm-hmm. It's it's that it's that old command and control style. You know, this comes from someone named Frederick Winslow Taylor, who is considered the father of the field of management. And Taylor literally said the ideal workman. This again, this isn't the factory, but I'll quote this because I could not make this up. He said, <laughs> "the the ideal workman." would be so stupid, I'm quoting now, so stupid that he more nearly resembled in his mental makeup the ox than any other type, mm. end quote. So that's that whole sense of just shut up and do what I say.
0: Mm. And so for so many years, I didn't realize that, I just thought this was the way you led. I, I wasn't even aware that this was handed down to me. I just, when I realized what I was doing was not the way it should be done, I thought, it was, I thought there was something wrong with me. I mean, in, in one sense, there there was, but I thought, you know, the, the reason I led this way was innate, but it but it actually had been taught. Does that make sense? Completely, completely. And this is what happens: we have these unconscious
1: mindsets, these unconscious beliefs, and because we don't know any different it's like fish don't realize they're swimming in the fishbowl, <laughs> They just it's just all they know. Mm. And I have a mentor who always told me, you can't change what you don't notice. So the first step in the change to becoming a better leader is the awareness of what lessons have I inherited <laughs> and are they serving me or are they getting in my way?
0: Mm. Well, Allah divides the book into four parts. The first part is, is all about context, and he shares some of the history that we've been talking about here. Uh, and then the other parts are the, the core components of being a leader, connection, communication, and collaboration. And I'd love to dig into each of these a little more, more deeply. So, so the basis of, of connection, you say, is, is empathy. Why is empathy at the top of the list of skills that, that leaders need to be successful?
1: Well, Jeff, if you think about what is leadership at its core, it's not a job title. It's not a position. At its core, leadership is a relationship between two human beings. And we all know that the basis of relationship is trust. Mm-hmm. And how do you build trust? It's through empathy. So empathy builds trust. Empathy offers insights. Empathy creates opportunities for people to be innovative. And so, and I define empathy as showing people that you understand them and care how they feel. As much as we like to think we're these logical, rational beings, at our core, what moves us to act, what drives behavior, what advertisers know all too well, (laughs) is emotion. And so basically creating a strong emotional connection where people feel that you care about them then they will care about you. And why that is so important today is because we don't all work on the factory assembly line. We work in this knowledge work age where everyone is being asked to solve problems creatively. And unless you tap into that feeling of engagement and discretionary effort, and people feel that they are cared about, they can't and won't give their best effort.
0: Well, I'm sure you have a lot of people in your experience push back on empathy and probably use words like that's too touchy-feely and and things of that nature. What are maybe some of the biggest challenges that leaders tend to face when leading with empathy? Is it that kind of mindset? Is it other things? Is it a combination?
1: There's a number of things, yeah, because we all get the fact that, you know, um, it does sound very touchy-feely. Oh, show people you care. And the the funny (laughs) thing is we're all able to show empathy, right? The the challenge is we don't do it with everyone. So we tend to do it with our close friends and our family, our loved ones. Mm. But suddenly with our employees, that might be outside of some people's empathic circle of concern. And so some of the biggest challenges you've named one first already, which is this idea that for a lot of people, they're frankly uncomfortable with emotions in the workplace. When I was growing up in the work, Place, I heard phrases like we have a check your feelings at the door policy or this is work. Maybe you've heard things like that as well. And it's a funny thing if you step back and, and unpack that expression because you can't really Check your feelings at the door. I mean, what you can do is you can suppress your feelings at the door, which is precisely what's happening. And Deloitte did this great study and found that 61 percent of U.S. employees cover their identities in some ways. They don't feel safe bringing their whole selves to work. And what we know is that when you wear that mask and feel disconnected, You create a low trust and low empathy and ultimately a low performance culture. So one big challenge to leading with empathy is that fear. Another big challenge is patience. The fact is showing people you understand them and care how they feel isn't some item that you can just check off of your to do list. Right. So we're so used to in our fast paced information technology rich age, you know, we're going to crank through all of our emails to get to zero inbox. And that's fine for email. But human relationships don't travel at the speed of light. They take time. So showing empathy takes showing patience and patience is in such short supply because so many people, the common theme is, oh, I've got too much on my plate. You know, I've got these results I have to deliver. Now, I understand that. In fact, in many organizations, driving for results is considered a core leadership competency. But the problem and you kind of talked about this in your example before, Jeff, is the problem is when you start driving for results, But it comes at the expense of the people that are trying to deliver those results. You're driving over them. That's the issue. So you have to be able to be aware of when to move fast again and when to move slow. So that's another big challenge. And there are other ones. Another big one is power. The fact is there's been great studies and research done. They put people into fMRI machines and they find that the more powerful people feel, the less empathy they have. So it's something to watch out for. So there's numerous challenges that can get in the way of us being able to lead with empathy, even though it sounds like common sense.
0: Uh, A a friend of mine and an author I'm a a fan of, he's been on the show a few times. His name is Jeff Goines. He posted on his Facebook page the other day, have you ever considered that you might be the villain in someone else's story? Just after I saw that post, I read this in your book. Establishing credibility starts with understanding the connection between your actions and their impact on others. And here's where it gets tricky. The impact isn't the same for everyone. You need to take your, uh, or tailor, I should say, your credibility one person At a time, how does credibility as a leader influence this relationship that we're talking about? And I think uh, you know, I view this you know based on that post in part in light of how uh, going back to what you said earlier, we we don't necessarily treat strangers with the same empathy we do those we're, we're close to. And boy, if there ever was a time when we as a society need to take that into account, it's now excellent
1: point yeah jeff i mean the fact is if there's a time for leaders to lean in and be more human <laughs> and exception, exceptionally human this is the time because we're all going through this collective trauma and you know it's funny i looked up the word trauma in the dictionary which it's defined as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience i think okay coronavirus you qualify you're trauma <laughs> and so we're we're all experiencing that now so this need to step in and care cuz let's face it no one's going to come out of this whether it's 6 months or 18 months or how long it's going to be from now, no one's going to come away thinking, you know, the people in my organization, they cared about me a little too much. But a lot of people are going to be thinking, wow, they didn't really care at all Mm. and how quickly they will be writing you off. So credibility is such a key piece to connection because credibility comes from the same root as credit or something worthy to be believed. And the idea with leaders is that if you don't believe the messenger and that the messenger is worthy, you won't believe the message. So we have to realize that as leaders, we are walking embodiments of what we're asking people to do. Now, we can't just say do this, but then not do that. So everything that we do, all the actions, all the words and everything that we don't do and say Adds up in account, someone's mind, they're keeping score. And everything either moves you closer to being someone they go, yeah, they're credible. That's someone I'll follow. Or they're going, nah, as soon as there's another opportunity, I'm out of here. So credibility is, is a big piece. So mm-hmm. part of that means being really conscious about what it is you say and do. And the simplest place I tell people and advise them, if you want to start building credibility, easiest place to start, show up on time. If you think about it, that's the easiest thing for any of us to measure. You're either here or not. For example, we had our call. You called me exactly at the top of the hour. And that (laughs) says something about you to me, which is Jeff's a professional. He's on time. Because if you were five or 10 minutes late in the absence of that information, where would my mind go? It wouldn't go, oh, I'm sure he's just busy and something else is going (laughs) on. It would go towards what's up. We had an agreement and now you're violating the agreement. So it's the simplest thing to do and follow through on. Now granted, you're not gonna be perfect at it all the time. However, if you set that intention to be on time all the time, that will start to create this halo effect that other people will see other aspects of your personality also in a credible light. So credibility is central to building strong, effective working relationships.
0: Now let's go to uh, communication, the second core component. Talk about something you share in the book related to the keys to successfully communicating, quote, the right way.
1: Yeah, so communication is trickier than it looks. And the reason why is I think we, we're we focused on the wrong things a lot of the time. People are focusing on we've got to communicate to our people. We've got to communicate. We don't communicate for communication's sake. The whole point of communication is to create shared understanding. And the reason that's so important is because shared understanding becomes the platform On which we take all future action. So if we have solid understanding, then we can make the best possible decisions, which will lead to best possible results. Ideally, if we're standing on a very shoddy and infirm foundation, then we're going to make lousy decisions and we're going to get lousy results. And it's amazing how often we skip the step of ensuring that we are getting shared understanding. And the reason is, you know, we tend to assume it's happening. We, if our eyes work and our ears work and our mouths and we can type, we assume all the parts are in working order. We must be communicating well when, in fact, the default setting for human communication is misunderstanding, trying to get alignment between what people say, what they mean, and what we hear is really tricky, because how often do we say one thing and mean something else? You know, I see that all the time. I mean, I'll tell you a quick funny story. This happened fairly recently, Mm. but I think we can relate to it. So my wife and I, my wife's Mary, And we have these friends named Pam and Charlie who came to visit us, drove drove up from Washington DC to our house in Western Massachusetts. And our house is got a driveway, it's really narrow. And at the end it widens out so we can park our two cars side to side. And so when Pam came to visit, she parked her car behind mine, basically blocking us in, which really wasn't a big deal until I had to leave to go to the airport. At which time I said, Pam, could you please move your car and park in front of the house? And she stopped and she said to me, you want me to park where? I said, just park in front of the house. You're sure? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> she said, okay, I'll park my car. So she went, did it. Anyway, I get my suitcase, I get in the car, I start backing out of the driveway, and then I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and this weird thing catches my eye. And I'm like, wait, what is that? Is that, is that? is that Pam's car? She's parked her car in front of the house, as in literally directly in front of the house, as in on the flower beds in front of the house (laughs) that are now being crushed by her wheels. Now, in my mind, the time when I say park your car in front of the house – I could not have been more obvious to myself that that means park your car on the curb, on the street, in front of the house. What else could I mean? Mm. But then I suddenly realized that Pam, why she kept asking was she was taking my words literally. So psychologists call this the projection bias where you unconsciously assume other people have the same meaning as you do. And you see this at work all the time. I mean, we hear people say things like, well, I sent them the email, they should know what to do. Or doesn't senior management realize what a stupid process this is? Anyway, any time we go to that incredulousness of, don't they see? Why don't they realize? That's the projection bias. So the key to creating understanding is knowing, first of all, you have to keep working to make it happen because it doesn't happen by itself. So the first thing I'd say is start with a clear, central message. What's the point? What do you want people walking away with? So for example, when we have our 10 a.m. on Tuesday meeting, why? What's the point? Are we gathering information? Are we getting input? Are we making a decision? Those are three very different meetings. But so often we say, we're going to have a meeting to talk about the strategy. Well, that's not clear enough. So the first thing is keep refining and getting clarity. And another simple tip I call it asking for a receipt, which is before you leave any meeting, stop, take five or 10 minutes, and recap everything that you said is coming out of here, who's doing what, and by when, and what's that gonna look like, and yes, say it out loud to make sure we're on the same page. Because again, if we don't do that, what ends up happening is we all go out to the water cooler and I'll come over to you, Jeff, so what do we decide we're gonna do in there? Who's doing what? So just take that time. You know, people are good at many things, but reading minds is not one of them. So another key that's connected to this one is make your implicit assumptions explicit. So those are some key tools and keys to help you to communicate in the right way.
0: Well, uh, we talked about connection, uh, communication. That last uh, core element is collaboration. And in this section, uh, motivation gets the first chapter a lot. Wh- what have you learned about uh, the uh, magic pill that is motivation?
1: Yeah, so so yes, motivation and the magic pill. What I found is very there is no magic pill to <laughs> motivating. And this is the, the challenge with this is that different people are motivated by different things. And the tendency is to think, oh, this works. And why does it work? Because someone told me about this or for years it was like, oh, give people money that'll motivate them. You know, there's this great story about Alfred Hitchcock, who, uh, you know, was known as kind of an old school director who thought actors should be like putty to be molded in the director's hands, mm-hmm. and just basically shut up and do what they're told. So he was working on this movie called Torn Curtain with Paul Newman. And Newman had some questions about his character. He's this method actor. So he wants to get into detail. And you know, Hitchcock didn't want to have anything to do with this conversation. He's like, he said, Look, everything you need to know is in the script. But Newman was, at this point, he's already a bona fide Hollywood star. He comes back He says, No, I need to know what's my character's motivation. And Hitchcock famously turns to Newman and says, Your motivation, Mr. Newman, is your salary, <laughs> you know, which I just, I just love that. I mean, it's like, no money's not going to work. Like make him a better actor by telling him he's going to get a paycheck. And so different people <laughs> try different things. And you know, some of us try the golden rule or right? treat other people the way you want to be treated, but that doesn't work all the time either because different people are motivated by different things. So mm. the key to all this is to understand what their needs are and what drives them and what makes them tick. And you do that surprise, surprise through connection and communication so that you get to know the person as that person. And that's why we have to tailor all this one person at a time.
0: You've hinted at some of this. I wondered if maybe we might go a little deeper into what the difference is between primary needs and performance needs leading by design, ultimately. Yeah.
1: So if we think about it, so we can't really motivate anyone else. What we can do as leaders is we can design environments where people can thrive and work at their best. And for my research, I found there's two separate areas. There's like you said, there's primary needs and those two Basic primary needs is we all have a need for safety. So you see it with coronavirus, obviously. People can't literally be face-to-face in physical proximity. So you've got physical safety. Another key component to safety is psychological safety. Do people feel safe speaking up? to their team? Do they feel like when the team meets, there's equal amounts of airtime, so everyone gets a voice, and not just a couple of people are dominating? So the first primary need is this need for safety. The other primary need we all have is this need for energy. We wanna work in environments that energize us. I'm sure, Jeff, you've been on those two hour meetings that haven't taken a break. And you're like, oh, my gosh, shoot me. Now, this is terrible. I'd rather (laughs) get the dentist getting a root canal and realizing there are things that we can do as leaders. Oh, this is going to be two hours. Let's let's put a break in. What a good what a concept. You know, we'd actually will get more more mileage by giving people a 15 minute break than trying just to push on through. Again, that's a very industrial age mindset. Let's just push on through. Mm. So we have these needs for safety and energy. Those are the primary needs then we have these performance needs. One is the need for ownership. Now, you talked about it with the employee that you worked with who basically said, don't tell me, don't micromanage me. Just tell me what the end goal is. I want to be able to own how I get there. So we all want to be creative in our own ways and problem solve things and be able to do things in our own way. So what do you do to create that autonomy and freedom for people to take ownership of what they do. So that's one of the key performance needs. The other one is around purpose. We all want to feel that we are contributing to something that matters, something that is bigger than just ourselves. So what do we as leaders do to remind people of the big picture? You know, it's quite possible you can be working for a company that does really incredible service-oriented work to the world. Like, for example, you could work in a hospital where you are literally saving lives. Mm. But if the culture of the hospital is such, it can make you feel like you're just stuck in a dead end job, even though you're literally helping to save lives every day. So helping people understand that's the other big need is this need for purpose. And how can we remind people of that purpose on a regular basis? I like to say that we need to be reminded of it just in the same way as that if, you know, you took your wedding vows 10 or 20 years ago, you can't cop out and say, well, I said, I love you on the wedding day. Isn't that good enough? (laughs) You know, we want to, we want to be reminded of this purpose on a regular basis.
0: Hmm. Well, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you that aren't directly related to the book before I do that. Anything else from the book you want to make sure we know about? And there's so much there. For me,
1: everything boils down to it starts with a mindset, but then breaking all these concepts of connection, communication and collaboration down into these simple behaviors. I'm a huge believer that leadership progress only comes from practicing specific skills. So Mm -hmm. once you commit to wanting to aspire and being a better leader, pick something, pick a habit and get started and repeat and rinse every day, just be <laughs> consistent with working at it. So for example, if you know, i want to work on my credibility and showing up on time, that's a simple tool. You can start to use that day in, day out. So I would say the thing to walk away with is this doesn't happen by reading a book. It happens by living the actions that you learn from it.
0: Mm, I love that. Well, speaking of books, so we talked about uh, Dan Pink's Drive a moment ago. I would be curious to know, what are some of your favorite books, books that have impacted you throughout the course of your career and that have left uh, an impression on you? Maybe they're books you go back to and, and reference again and again.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of books that I find keep getting dusted off the bookshelf. (laughs) They're classics, and for good reason, they've inspired my thinking, they've Mm -hmm. inspired my writing. One, you'll know it quite well, it's Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm -hmm. Not only do I find that I come back to it, but those principles are so part of the common lingua franca of everyone these days, you know, talking about things like seek first to understand then be understood or put first things first. I mean, these are such fundamental principles that he codified in such a powerful way. So I go back to that book consistently and those principles I use all the time. Another book that I come back to a lot is uh, Jim Kuz's and Barry Posner's The Leadership Challenge. Um, What I love, I say that Kuz's and Posner democratized leadership. And what I mean by that is I think there used to be this great man ideal of leader and then they used the word man by the way because that's <laughs> that's dating when it was this idea of you know so the leaders that i grew up thinking who are your leaders that you admire you know i'd come up with names like mahatma gandhi and martin luther king and like okay but what kuzas and posner do is they actually show that leadership is a state of being that anyone and everyone can do and they mm-hmm. look at ordinary everyday people who start to do extraordinary things by applying principles. And when I read that, kind of, my head exploded. I went, oh, these are, this, there's a roadmap. I can start to follow these things. And I think that book is now in its sixth or seventh edition at this point. It's got such powerful fundamentals. So I, I go back to them and both uh, Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner, they're kind of heroes of mine because mm. I think they've taken these ideas and they've made them so accessible to everyone.
0: I was talking with John Jantz, wrote a book called Duct Tape Marketing, and more recently, The Self-Reliant Entrepreneur, which is like a a 366 meditations or devotional kind of day-by-day kind of thing. And I was asking him, when it comes to reading and um, things you're reading to learn and develop, how do you make sure that you take what you've learned and are going to actually apply it and do something with it or remember the things you want to remember. And, and his response was something I thought was, was awesome. I'd be curious to know what yours is to that question. Um, he said, you know, I, I put myself in positions to teach it. And when I know I'm going to have to teach it, I, I do better about <laughs> implementation and remember. What about you? What are some things you do to ensure you're going to, to act on what you want to act on when it comes to the things you read?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question and great answer, by the way. I was actually going to go along to similar lines. For me, it's teaching this stuff. And the other thing along with teaching is writing about it because the act of writing forces me to clarify my thinking. If you think about it, I mean, writing forces you to take a whole cluster of neural networks going, Wow, all this stuff is thinking, and then how do I logically put these out in a way that someone else can understand? So for me, teaching and writing about things really helps me to clarify. Just like this conversation that we're having today, as much as it hopefully sounds like it's just a relaxed, casual conversation, this is coming out of months and years of me thinking about these ideas, and this is what great thinking and writing does for anyone's ideas. I always coach you know, aspiring writers, like, oh, I wanna write a book, where do I start? Don't worry about a book. Start with a blog, you know, and mm. if only you and your mom read it, that's fine yeah. because just the act of writing is going to make you a better thinker. So I'm a huge fan of
0: the writing process to
1: clarify your thinking and then also to retain knowledge and
0: information. Well, with so much of your work being lived out through in-person workshops and public talks, obviously that's been impacted and I'm, I'm sure you're making adjustments to some things online. And uh, I've heard from some people who say they're having even better results. Uh, BJ Fogg a, a couple of weeks ago said that he's found that something he's teaching online is going even better than when they did it in person. Um, how have you been impacted? How are you adjusting? And, and then finally, what's ahead for you in, in the rest of 2020? How, how are you going to deal with what's happening going forward?
1: Yeah, it's interesting interesting times, right? So the word of the year seems to be pivot, right? <laughs> Particularly for people who work industries where they were doing so much. I was doing a lot of live training, live coaching, live speaking. And so, yeah, it's basically pivoting to doing things online. What has been amazing is, for example, like one-on-one executive and leadership coaching. People are finding that doing it via Zoom, incredibly, mm. you know, if people are coachable, they're coachable online. I mean, it's right. amazing. And same thing with doing online virtual workshops. I'm finding the same thing. You know, it's amazing how just, putting people into small groups, having them discuss. I'm a huge believer in creating interactive as opposed to here, watch my recorded canned webinar where <laughs> I'm not actually present. And you're just seeing a, you know, an image of me. Mm. Um, so I really, I think there's something about that interaction. It still works. So for me, it's really about just continuing to do that. And in the meantime, as I look to moving forward, I certainly miss the face-to-face interactions and the energy that that mm. brings. But in the meantime, I'll just continue to expand with my work with leadership coaching and training and speaking, doing it virtually. That's just where we are right now. Mm.
0: Well, the book, again, is called Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And his name is Allah Hunkins. I believe every time I said it out loud, I said it roughly how it's supposed to be said. But in case you need the help, it is spelled A-L-A-I-N, last name Hunkins, H-U-N-K-I-N-S. Allah, thank you for being here and a part of the Read to Lead podcast.
1: Jeff, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure being with you. Thank you.
0: To find out more about Allah and his book, simply navigate over to to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 328 for episode 328. There you'll find all the links you need, including where to find Allah online and the books he recommended as well. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 328. Remember, if I can help fill a speaker void in your next event, simply reach out to me directly, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. That's also the address to share your feedback, questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. I learned a great deal from next week's guest on how to identify what does and does not give me energy throughout my day. I'm talking about Molly Fletcher. We'll be sitting now with her and her book, The Energy Clock, next time on the podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember leaders read and readers lead.